0: check it out hi my name's jasmine in this episode i'll be speaking with the fabulous sarah fagan all about women and hiv check it out
1: LGBTIQ health
0: Lifestyle
1: And community news
0: Check it out Is brought to you By the AIDS Action Council From Canberra For everyone we're speaking with Sarah Fagan, the previous chair from Positive Women Victoria. She's currently the peer navigator with Living Positive Victoria and on the board of NAPWA, the National Association of People Living with HIV. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Jasmine. So thank you for joining us last night at our International AIDS Candlelight Memorial in Canberra. You You gave a very powerful, wonderful speech yesterday. How
1: was that experience for you? Thank you, Jasmine. It was really, really powerful. It was the first time I've ever spoken at a Candlelight Memorial service and it's so different to speaking um, in a public forum or speaking at universities or schools, which I've been doing um, with the Positive Speakers Bureau in in Melbourne. And so I think to memorialise something and to reflect in that way is such a totally different feeling. And, you know, I can normally sort of walk into spaces and have quite a bit of anxiety and I felt really calm and I think it was... This, this, that moment is bigger than just us in Canberra or bigger than us just in Australia. That is a global event and it just holds so much weight and there's so much reflection that happens on that day. You gave a very wonderful speech that shed some really personal
0: insights into your life and your experience. We might just take a quick listen to that now and come back and talk about it a little bit more. Sure.
1: I was diagnosed in the decade of U equals U. Undetectable means untransmittable. I cannot pass HIV on to anybody. Before my diagnosis in 2008, I was young and fearless and making a way for myself. I had it all figured out. I was in my prime. I was young, beautiful, clever, until I got that HIV positive diagnosis. Overnight, I became a social pariah. The triple combination therapy was the norm and people were now living with HIV, not dying because of it. But I could not accept my HIV status for so many reasons. It changed my identity, my sexuality. What did a girl my age have to live for? Nothing, I felt. I was untouchable, I was unlovable, stigmatised, abused. Believe me when I tell you, I was told to die. That's what I wanted as well. I stopped my antiretrovirals, my HIV medication, and waited. My family watched my fall, and as I broke, I was breaking them killing them as I tried to kill myself slowly, so slowly. After much discussion, I was admitted into palliative care. As a young woman living with a chronic, manageable illness, this speaks volumes to the power of stigma and the effect it has on us as people living with HIV. It was there I almost died, in the arms of those who loved me and in the arms of those who nearly lost everything trying to keep me. And it was in the arms of those people I found my fight. With the medical support of the doctors and nurses at the Alfred Hospital, the Melbourne HIV community, especially my HIV mum, because they exist, Susan Paxton, my own family, especially my mum Cornelia and my dad Michael, who never gave up on me, and my few dear friends I had left after my diagnosis. I gained my reason to live.
0: Thank you for sharing your story with us, Sarah. That sounded like a story of being in a very dark place and managing to find some light.
1: It is, it is, and it is a lot to share and I think it's just so important to people remember that a HIV diagnosis today isn't you're gonna be okay because it it does hit you and it is really hard and it did. It took away a lot of my identity. I was I was I was kicking goals, I was really strong and really confident and really happy in my life and I just turned 21 and getting that HIV positive diagnosis just came out of freaking nowhere. And it it was really hard, Um, you know, my relationship broke down and all these factors, and then I was back at home and I was, you know, back at my parents' place and I just felt so dark. You know, pretty much within a month of my diagnosis, Um, my actual diagnosis in the hospital where in this rural town wasn't really good either, Um, and I didn't have that support when you're the most vulnerable. It was from um, my suicide attempt, um, my drug overdose, my parents found out, um, the hospital accidentally disclosed. Um, But that was a blessing in disguise because at least they were alerted to what was going on for me. And I did did try and then kick along, you know, and just tried. I'm like, I've dealt with a lot, I can deal with this. Um, And then it was the stigma that came with that diagnosis of being assaulted or being told to go die. You know, and I felt that as a queer woman, I felt that both for in the heterosexual community and the lesbian community, and I felt really blocked and somebody that does, I am a sexual person, and I felt like I was losing a really key part of myself. And yeah, it, 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 I guess enough of those feelings, enough of those words and and then that self stigma that you start just putting this so much hate on yourself. And then I did. I just gave up. I, I, you know, took my hands off my steering, off the steering wheel, and I just let AIDS take over. I was just waiting to crash, and I did. Um, and that was, you know, a, a, not so much a challenging time for me. I'd made a decision, and I was content in that. And also, when you are so unwell, your brain doesn't function that well. You know, you are you are not thinking clearly, you're really scattered. I was very skinny, um, very ill. You know, having AIDS defining illnesses. Um, I looked like somebody from the 80s. You know, it was, I I imagine, horrific for my family. And my mum actually was a nurse at Fairfield Hospital in the late 70s. Um, So she was dealing with people living with HIV before they even knew, before it was even grid, gay-related immune deficiency. So she'd seen it before and she'd worked with it and she's held people dying, you know, pre you know pre-me you know like pre when I was just not even a thought and then I can't imagine that impact of that and her holding her daughter through the same times that she held those patients and she was huge she was such a massive rock and being a nurse as well was on to the doctors and all I remember was I'm um, going into palliative care and being given a dose of morphine and my kidneys and liver were failing and that's all I kind of remember and then I woke up and my sister was there, my brother, my mum, my dad, my grandma. You know, I had friends coming to visit me. You know, and the friends I had left, you know, an HIV diagnosis can take people out of your life and they, they fear you and good riddance, you know. The people I've got around me are just so incredible. Yeah, and it was there. It was those moments of going, this is not just me anymore, you know, this is everybody that loves me. And I remember the nurse bringing in the first dose of antiretrovirals and I just was like, I'll take them. And I didn't want to. And I took them though for my mum and for my dad, my sister, who nearly lost her job. So did my dad during those time that I was in hospital and so on well, because it was months. And I, I resent everybody that loved me, but I kept taking the ARVs and I kept taking them and I just hated it. And I'm like, well, I don't want to live for myself, but I can live for my family. And you know, a HIV diagnosis is hard for you and it is your journey, but you know, people live, and there's somebody, everybody has somebody that loves them. There's at least one person in the world that loves you. Whether you know it or you can see it or feel it or not, I will guarantee, I will, I will swear on my mother's life that that is true because everybody has that one person. And I think if you can feel that love and you love them as well, you can overcome a lot. And that, that became my driving force. But it just, you know, it's, it's, it just speaks about stigma and discrimination and social isolation and the pressure that still exists for people living with HIV, and it can push you to those edges. I always tell the school kids when I'm talking to them, now you know someone with HIV hope next time you come across them you can be a little bit kinder and a little bit more understanding because that is how you break down stigma. You educate somebody, you dispel the fears and you can be a bit kinder and you can be a bit nicer and that can be the difference between somebody living or dying um, and thriving as Bill Patterson spoke last night about at the memorial. You know it's no longer about just living and surviving with HIV, that's not enough. We now want to thrive and I am thriving now you know my family have just been incredible and my friends and you know it was still hard and I still had to face stigma and discrimination in so many different settings but I became more resilient and I think that's really important you know once you become more resilient you can deal with that you know and you're gonna have to beat this out but don't fuck with me you know, you you get that inner voice and whether that's how you appear or that's how you, you kind of are, I just I tell all the girls that I work with and everybody, just have that little voice in the back of your head, if you're in that situation saying, Do not fuck with me And you can be calm in the demeanor, but just know inside you are educated yourself. You know that you're not a bad person. All of those all of that self stigma and all of those myths and all of that thirty years of collective hate and shit that we've been thrown as a community is out there but if you in your mind and your body and you are confident and you got those supports and that person that loves you, you can do a lot and it sounds so cliche but I'm living proof of that and you know 10 years later I'm, I'm married you know and I'm living a really normal suburban life <laughs> not really but um you know there is a way out especially and I think yeah, yeah you can do it <laughs>
0: So last night we had three guest speakers, yourself, Bill Patterson and Tim Dyke. You were all great speakers with very different perspectives on HIV. How do you feel being the only female identified person in that situation?
1: Mm. It was a privilege to be there. Um, I think historically there's been issues of women not being captured in situations all across the board, all across the spectrum. You know, women are, you know, the most affected. We are the face of HIV globally. And we do have this unique epidemic in Australia where we are a minority population. So it's really important and powerful to be represented and to have been able to speak. I think that's why I do it as much as I get those nerves and those feelings and I'm like, why am I here? And then I think when you realise and remember why you're there, and that's to give a face and a profile to women living with HIV and our unique health outcomes as well and the way that um, antiretrovirals interact with our bodies, our fertility, um, even our periods or even ageing with HIV, looking at menopause. There are so many unique health factors that women experience as a woman though within the HIV community I'm really fortunate that I have found some in- incredible allies and supporters that are they're gay they're straight they're women men trans non-identified non-binary And we as a community do have that collectiveness. But there is, and I know a friend of mine has has described this, that feeling of, you can be in this community, you can go to an event and everybody's there, and then all the boys go off and go to their clubs or they go off to have their sex and all of a sudden you're just that girl. And I can really relate to that experience. She actually, has got that put into art through a play by Darren Weiser called Stigma and it sort of explains that that feeling in a really beautiful dance and spoken word and it explains that drop off that a lot of women experience. I'm really lucky that I have really strong female advocates around me and activists that really, you know, it, we hold each other together a lot. But it is though there's still it's really hard as well to engage women and we're trying to engage more women to be able to speak openly to lift that burden of secrecy that so many of us carry as as positive people and but especially you know that journey for women is so different you know we are women are generally carers you know we have to look after children or parents or other relatives there's cultural issues that also play into those those lived experiences and patriarchal systems I know a, a huge impact on our culturally diverse sisters there are there are so many unique factors that do separate us from our male counterparts or non-binary counterparts and, and they're all unique journeys but it's about that engagement and you know well I would love to have a go to those events and then there's you know so many women speakers to choose from that you know there'd be three or four of us not just the one there's always just the one of us.
0: So what do you think is holding women back from connecting with the positive community when when you say there's a you know all the men go off and go to their boys club and and there's just a woman left
1: behind yeah stigma um, that fear of being exposed or found out about their HIV status you know even with my own personal journey, I was open with my HIV status initially with really good family and friend support and I got married and I got married to a really incredible man but also with that meant that I was now, he was now dealing with the stigma of marrying a positive woman. And you know so for him, and we, you know I, I was quite happy to make this decision of no longer disclosing how publicly I was, just kind of pulling my profile back. So you Google my name, it's all over the interweb, but you know it just meant that I was sort of doing, you know, went into more governance spaces and doing more just school talks and, and being sort of more mindful of where and how I spoke about my HIV. And I'm, I'm, I would do that for him. I love him, and I want to. I don't want him to have to go through that. But that speaks volumes to stigma that it still exists. And even though I'm undetectable, you know, there's no risk of transmission. I'm just as normal and crazy as the next girl. There's still that fear, and within his community, there's a lot of fear of people finding out. So that's you know my own personal experience. Then add having children and cultural diversity to that. Add all those other lenses that we live under. It's really challenging, really challenging.
0: Check it out. So it is a bit of an issue in Australia, being such a multicultural and culturally diverse country, mm. that we do have lots of women from other nations mm. who uh, have come here with HIV or they've become HIV positive once they've, they've reached Australia. Would you like to tell us a bit about their experience from, from what you know?
1: Yeah, so um, my time with Positive Women Victoria really informed me about what is going on for women, especially in Victoria, but also in a national sense. There is so much stigma around women contracting HIV in Australia because generally women that are coming from Af- like African countries, Southeast Asian countries, even Northern Asian countries as well, there's this assumption that there is no HIV in Australia, so if you contract HIV here, you have done something terrible, or you've brought it here, or there's you know there's, you know, thinking about cultural you know beliefs as well around voodoo and black magic and things like that that play into it. There's a huge stigma that exists there. Um, also then around being a mother wanting to breastfeed, which is a contentious issue to not breastfeed if you're a positive woman, but then in so many cultures. Why are you not breastfeeding your child? What is wrong with you? So women are feeling forced to breastfeed their children even though they're being advised not to we don't know that it's okay or if it's not okay. I think they're still we're still deciding on that and something that's a whole other conversation. Yeah, there's so many issues around that. And then it's also cultural being, being identified. Uh, we have these pockets of migrant communities all around Australia, you know, like you go to Hopper's Crossing in Melbourne and you'll know you'll see this community and the Korean community lives here and, you know, we have these pockets and these women are so fearful as well of what if that one woman they want to go talk to is open in that community and she's then associated with her, she can't be. You know, there's so much to protect. And, yeah, there's, it's just so many layers and layers of barriers, you know, and we know the power of peer support. We know the power of peer engagement and how much better health outcomes, mental health outcomes, people are after engaging with peers. It's just breaking down some of those barriers and creating a space that is safe enough for these women that we can get them in. And heterosexual men and all the communities, you know, all these hard to reach populations, trans communities, again, within culture, with a cultural lens on it, is even more complicated. And But I think if we can start modelling really good practice with women, um, which is a, a growing population in Australia as far as transmission, I think when we can start applying similar practice to heterosexual men and trans communities. Why do you think it's a growing population in Australia? <sighs> Because people forgot about AIDS. I was born in the 80s. You know, there was the Grim Reaper campaigns and all of those sort of things. And there's a generation that forgot. We stopped dying and people forgot. And people still get blown away. by When I disclose, if I'm not open about my status, I say that I work in the sector. So that's one of my tools to manage disclosure and have been able to still have a conversation around... HIV, I work in the sector, I, I do counselling instead of identifying myself as a peer, you know. So in that sort of way you can sort of feel people out and people are so surprised that HIV still exists and, you know, it's, it's, it blows my mind that people forgot and, you know, forgot everything that happened in those times during those pandemic plague days where there was death all the time. There are a good movements happening but I think it needs to come from us. And we know historically the HIV movement has always been driven by us, by the people living with the virus. And that's sort of dropped away and now people are better. You can get diagnosed, go see a doctor once a year, take your medication, manage your side effects, and really nobody needs to know. But if you can, if you can live with that secrecy, okay, great, that's some for some people that works. But I think by stepping up and being involved within the sector all the community and just finding different ways that you can be involved and there's so many different ways you can be involved without having to disclose you know you can use aliases you can you know sort of get creative about your identity as well and there's just so many different fields of volunteering um, different programs workshops that people can be involved in and really start to drive that change for HIV mm-hmm. and, and bring it back to the public cold face you mentioned seeing a doctor once a
0: year. Mm. Do you think that's mostly just in the cities? How do you think people living with HIV in more regional areas of Australia, what their experiences might be like, <sighs> particularly women?
1: Yeah, I, I, I mean, I was diagnosed in a, a regional town and um, moved back to Melbourne um, pretty quickly after my diagnosis. So I am so in that urban bubble of everything I need is given to me and I feel so privileged and lucky that I have that. Um, I know friends of mine that um, live in rural towns and a um, huge issues around access. Um, obviously, is a really big one um, of getting medications to them and in a discreet way and a private way. So they can, you know, pretty much if your HIV is under control and you can reach an undetectable status for six months and your CD4 are tracking and your CD4 and CD8 cells are all good, all those things that the doctors look at, you can get away with seeing your GP or your HIV specialist once or twice a year. Mm as long as every, all that whole bubble of healthcare is being looked after so your mental health is good you're adhering to your medication you know you're looking after yourself but I know tech people in regional towns to access their medication it has to go through their local pharmacist. And then that local pharmacist knows your auntie Jenny and then Jenny knows whoever and it goes on and on and then the next thing you know you're that you're that positive person in that town. I've heard of really positive experiences. I hate using that word. Positive experiences of people in rural towns actually been quite even better than in city than the city folk. Kind of just going, Oh yeah, that's all right, mate. No worries. To the other extreme of people receiving hate letters and saying you intentionally got HIV so you could receive disability pensions. And, you know, so there's a whole spectrum of of way people, you know, experience disclosure and stigma as well. Yeah, we have a lot to do, though, around um, rural spaces um, and access and just support networks as well. It's really hard. A lot of people have to travel a long way to get support. Or they'll try and create local support groups and then again they have to be public about their status and then they'd be you know inappropriately disclosed and there's there are still so many barriers. But I think we're getting on top of the access issue and now if the treatments being as good as they are and if people can follow that regime and look after themselves, at least their specialist missions are once or twice a year, make a weekend of it, you know, go into the city, you know, it's not ideal, but it's it's not bad.
0: If you could take this opportunity whispering into the ear of someone, Mm. any woman who's recently or not so recently been diagnosed and maybe not feeling confident to share their experience with the people they love around them, what Mm. would you say to them?
1: I think anybody, anyone that gets diagnosed with HIV, it's that I know that feeling of loneliness and shame and fear. And I just, I guess I would like to remind them that this too shall pass and that find that person that you love and that you trust um, and be prepared for all the outcomes because i can't control on you nev- nobody can control who how people will react when you disclose your hiv status um, and sometimes the ones you least expect that will be the most amazing but find that inner strength and and when the time is right let it out lift that burden a little bit that you're carrying that secrecy that you're carrying because there is there is a freeing part in it. There is something freeing about talking about your HIV and it normalises it and it's nothing to be ashamed of. You had probably just had sex or, you know, you might have got a blood transfusion or you might have injected drug once or whatever it is. It's not about how you got it or anything like that. It's not We're not bad people, you know, and it's okay to talk about it. If we
0: think of HIV as the other person in the room, how has your relationship with it changed over the last 10 years?
1: Hmm. That person. (laughs) (laughs) That person, HIV, um, consumed me. It was all that I could see. So imagine a big ball in front of you that is HIV and it was just in my face and it was telling me all the things that were wrong with me. It was influencing how I behaved with other people Um, and it made me feel less than, I was less worthy than, I was not. It was just feeding me negativity, negative, negative, negative. You know, and it took me a good five years. You know, I see, oh my God, I see some of the most resilient people coming. You know, they get a diagnosis in three months. They're like, you know what? I've got this. I'm like, it took me five years to even get near where you are. Everybody's journey is different. But uh, now that HIV, that big ball of HIV that was right inside my face is now off to Mm -hmm. the side. And it's still there and it's still in my periphery, but I can see so much more. I can see past that big ball of just darkness and, and illness and loathing and self-stigma and sabotaging and I can see now like all these beautiful things puppy dogs and going to the beach and hanging out with friends and family and falling in love and all these things that we do in life that make life worth living and HIV is there and I want it to be there because it keeps me on track it keeps me focused it you know I, I don't want people to go through that experience of just having HIV consume you you know it does it informs my practice it reminds me that peer-based services are the best thing having it right there next to me just reminds me that there's still work to be done that yeah I still am living with a chronic illness my body is inflamed I do have side effects to deal with but you know I'm moving forward I can see the bigger picture now it's really nice (laughs)
0: So let's move on to a discussion about disclosure. Mm. That's a word that we hear all the time here at the council, whether it's talking about your sexuality, your gender identity, your HIV status. What does disclosure mean to you?
1: Oh, disclosure. We talk about this a lot. You're right. It comes up all the time because it doesn't matter if you've been diagnosed for one week or 100 years, you still have to deal with disclosure issues all the time. I think first of all, we need to remember that you don't have to. It's, it's private, this is your private health and sometimes disclosing is not an option for people or they just don't need to. We had a woman that recently came to a workshop I was running who's been living with HIV for a long time. She has adult children and she was getting older and, and she came to this workshop because she wanted to think and figure out, should she tell them? You know These kids are in their 30s and 40s and they don't know and she's like, I, I feel like I should tell them. She walked away from that workshop going, you know what, I'm not gonna tell them. And that was okay. And we need to always think about why. Why are we telling that person and then what are they gonna benefit from that? And what will you benefit from that? And then what will happen to that information? As soon as you disclose, you have no control anymore of your information. So I always remind and remind myself, why am I saying this? Why am I about to tell you? Why am I on this podcast right now? You know, and think about those reasons, and that can sort of help ground you and go, okay. Well, I'm 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 doing this because I want to talk. I want to give a profile to women. So yeah, I'm going to talk on this podcast and and talk to you, Jasmine. But then you know, what is going to happen? What what benefit you know is going to come from that? And then what is going to happen with the information? So I think that's really important. Whether it be a sexual partner, um, you know, to family and friends. Why, why? and to really do you need to. I, I'm myself personally, I can't speak for everybody, I could not live with this and not tell a soul. I need that support, I want to be able to share and you know, and lift that my own burden of secrecy. But yeah, it's, it's so unique, it's such a unique journey for people you know. and I think it's important as well to know your laws in your state or territory. Um, they can really govern about how you disclose to sexual partners um, and other people you know with undetectable meaning untransmittable we cannot give anybody HIV amazing that's really important to to know those laws and about what safe sex is do you need to disclose to that cheeky one night stand or you know all of this stuff we have so many more tools in our tool belt around disclosure and safely disclosing and the right not to and there's no legal implications against us. So that's really important. Again, it comes back to being really educated and that will build up your resilience and then that will then help you inform how and when and what and why you are disclosing.
0: Check it out. All right, so the Fem Fatales, they are the organizers of the National Day of Women Living with HIV, yeah, which happens on the day after International Women's the Day. Day
1: before,
0: day after, day after, day after, day after. Oh my <laughs>
1: god! And thank you for reminding me. I should have known that. Oh god. So the
0: ninth of March every year.
1: Yeah, yes. yeah. That's a really beautiful day, and they really are pushing that. And it's a day where you can come and you can be, you can be involved. Normally, every state will have something going on, and you can go. It's not an identifying day, but if you know. Um, and just sort of celebrate, you know, we are here and we need to be recognised, you know. And it's a really nice thing too, as well, coinciding with International Women's Day. It's sort of a nice celebration of the beautiful feminine creatures that we are, in all our colours and shapes and sizes and identities and and statuses as well. Yeah, and mm. visibility. And visibility. Yeah, totally. Do you think
0: it's really important for positive women to be visible in the community?
1: Yeah. Definitely. There's always been that adage that has been around since the beginning of time that there is nothing for us without us. And that is so true. And I know I know that it is challenging to be open. And there are so many different factors that can be barriers like getting married. Something as simple as that can sort of mean that you can't be public. But, you know, I choose to disclose and I am in control of that to a point, you know, as I was saying about disclosure, once it's out there, you, you don't have control over it. But... I choose not to do public media, I choose to do sector work, you know. So then I figure as well, if somebody's looking for a resource or they're looking for something about women, that means that they've, they've got skin in the game. And so I'm not too concerned about them finding out about my status.
0: So what other resources can Positive Women access?
1: So yeah, I've spoken a, a little bit about Femme Fatales, um, which you can, um, all the links will be up with this podcast. Positive Women Victoria is also an amazing organisation, obviously, Um, a little bit biased, but there is so many resources. It doesn't matter if you're not a Victorian woman, um, there's still opportunities to engage and there's still spaces and resources on the the website um, that you can access. Even giving a call to the office, we do have amazing peer support team in there that are always willing to have a good chat. So yeah, totally accessible and yeah, a really good group of women. We've got some amazing research papers up and researches about disclosure and disclosing to children as well. And it's good to note as well that Positive Women Victoria is the only government-funded organisation in Australia whose sole purpose is to support women living with HIV. So we, we want to make sure that women from all over the country feel included and welcomed. You know.
0: So do you offer services in translated materials using interpreters?
1: We do have interpreter services, definitely. Translated materials is something that we're still working on. Living Positive Victoria has started to um, create, their great little pamphlets, and there's like a pocket size, sort of business card size, and it just talks about the facts of HIV, so transmission, U equals U, and it's just like, you know, within two minutes you're ten times more educated than you ever were. So a really good disclosure tool, you can kind of give somebody these little cards and they're translated into three different languages at the moment so we are starting to be able to do that more it's it's a, a funding issue as well unfortunately. of course. <laughs> but yeah we do have interpreter services available definitely and yeah we'll put all that information up with uh, the link mm-hmm. I'll also quickly talk about just two more things as far as resources that I think are really, really interesting and accessible is PLDI, um, which is a Positive Leadership Development Institute. Um, That is run in partnership with so many different HIV organisations around the country. Um, And these are for people that are showing leadership capabilities or people not necessarily in the HIV sector. But just people that are kind of wanting to expand a bit, you know, maybe use their status for something or just engage in different ways or just even finesse or discover that they are a leader. I'm an alumni of PLDI and it's certainly propelled me on my own HIV journey as as an advocate. You can access an application form. They run them two or three times a year. I can't remember off the top of my head. But really good. And uh, we found within those groups, they're generally, of course, gay men, you know, which is fine. But the women that are there have the most impact on the rest of the group. So these are, it's a highly group engaged workshop. And it's, you know, there might be two or three women within that group with 10 gay guys. And it's the stories that the women share with these men that blow their minds and remind them that there are other people living with HIV. There are heterosexuals even living with HIV. And so many men have just found it so impacting in hearing the stories of women. So much so um, another alumni of PLDI, James Addensol, who is a Victorian-led leather man, with his crown, with his sash that he wears so beautifully, his charity of choice is Positive in Victoria, because of the stories of women he heard and just how inspiring and and powerful and tragic and beautiful also. So... A really good opportunity, and I really would love to see more women applying for PLDI because I think not just for your own personal growth, but the growth for the group as well is really, really powerful, and a really again a privilege to be part of. I did want to quickly
0: just touch on your PLDI experience and the leather man, mm. and him supporting the positive women, mm. and I think that's something that you know we we, we really need to highlight that people of different communities supporting each other yeah. and how important that is mm. um, and it's from sharing stories and connecting with each other and engaging
1: and yeah oh jasmine 100 percent, and it even surprised me he kept it under wraps for a lot big i facilitated his pldi and i know the women he was talking about there that were incredible and it's a power as well as women we are impacting when we're open And we share with, you know, there is a lot of power in a woman's story and a woman's voice being heard because it's also not, we're not used to it as a society. So when when a woman speaks out and she speaks boldly and clearly, people do, they will shut up and listen. And and there is a lot of impact to be had. But yeah, James entered the the other man competition and won. And then he announced that he was going to support Positive Women Victoria. And um, it's it's meant as well that, you know, certain venues that are men-only spaces have become, they're having more mixed nights um, and mixed events so women can come. It's been really beautiful to educate as well the broader gay community and the fetish communities about the experience of women and HIV because it's not part of their lexicon, it's not part of their their worlds and they can kind of forget. And, you know, we as a community do so much better when we're together and James is doing an amazing, amazing piece of support and advocacy around that and really bridging a lot of gaps within those communities. And, ugh a lot of love to that man. Lovely.
0: Well, thank you very much for travelling all the way to Canberra to be a guest speaker at our International AIDS Candlelight Memorial yesterday. I guess I might want to have a final question, which is what do you like the most about Canberra?
1: <gasps> so far, well, I had a nice dinner at some flash restaurant last <laughs> night. That was pretty good. Um, honestly, I love, I love that it looks like a quintessential bush. Aussie bush landscape there's plenty of gum trees the air is fresh and crisp obviously the people here are incredibly good looking as well so.
0: <laughs> she's looking at me
1: yeah I yeah, am Jasmine <laughs> no thank you so much for having me and it's been such a pleasure and I'm looking forward to my next little adventure to Canberra guys
0: big thanks to my good friend Sarah Fagan for sharing her story We have a stack of useful links on the podcast page of our website, so be sure and take a look. Until next time, my name's Jasmine. Check it out. For more information, visit our website at aidsaction.org.au. Follow us on Facebook or become an AIDS Action Council member. You know you want to.
1: LGBTIQ, health,
0: lifestyle,
1: and community news. Check It Out is brought to you by the AIDS Action Council.
0: From Canberra, for everyone.